Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have Roger Manning on his show, and he has had a very interesting career in the military and is willing to come on and talk about it. Thanks for coming on. Hey, this is uh, Roger Manning, and um, just to give you a little bit, bit of background on me, I spent almost just a few days short of 22 years in the military. Um, I joined up early in 1967 to an organization that back then was called the Army Security Agency. And the Army Security Agency was the, uh, it was kind of an odd situation. Although, although we were in the military and we wore uniforms, our job was to intercept electronic transmissions, be that uh, radio or uh, teletype, voice communications. Mm -hmm. And we reported directly to the National Security Agency, not to the military superiors. Okay, so you reported to the NSA. We certainly did. You know, for the first 10, 11 years of my life, we were Army Security Agency. And then in 1976, they decided to form a new command mm-hmm. under General um, Stubblebine, who people may have heard of from the CIA Stargate program. I don't know. But anyway, they, um, they closed down the Army Security Agency, renamed it the United States Army Intelligence and Security Command. Our job stayed the same, but our reporting structure changed. So now we reported to the the battalion commanders um, and directly to the Department of Defense rather than to the National Security Agency. Interesting. And, and so in a hierarchy, I always have trouble following. Like who does the NSA report to? The NSA typically reports to the uh, Deputy Director of Intelligence uh, at the CIA okay. and and to the obviously to the Secretary of Defense. Mm-hmm. And how about like going the other way, like like when you were just reporting to the like the Pentagon or the Army, who do they report to? Well, the there's a lot of different places, especially in the intelligence network. So mm-hmm. uh, the Army will coordinate with the Defense Intelligence Agency. The Defense Intelligence Agency will will send that to whoever the commanding general is at the time of intelligence operations. And then they report directly to the Secretary of Defense or to the White House, depending upon the nature of what they're reporting. It's Mm -hmm. an unusual circumstance in that, um, for example, the president, we can tell him what our intelligence has discovered, but depending upon the discovery method, He's not cleared to know how we did that. Okay. Wow. So, uh, so it sounds like the um, Secretary of Security was pretty much getting the information from either source. Uh, yeah. At the highest levels, it's a very coordinated event. I mean, every single day, the president gets an intelligence brief. Mm-hmm. It's a compilation. I mean, 
every military, the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, the Marines, they all have their own intelligence sources, their own intelligence groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then you have the Defense Intelligence Agency that a lot of their stuff is human intelligence. So they'll have agents on the ground. Uh, The NSA, despite what many people think, their ears, and that's all, that's all they have is they listen to every type of, a, of electronic transmission you can think of. They do photographic intelligence, but they don't, they're not involved in human intelligence. The, the, the National Security Agency does not have agents on the ground. Right. That's not how they do business. But the Defense Intelligence Agency does, and the CIA does. Even the FBI has a role to play in the intelligence gathering both domestic and to a limited degree in, uh, in foreign countries. So you got all of these people reporting and sometimes they report different things. And, and usually it's the combination of the Defense Intelligence Agency and the CIA that pulls everything together, sorts it out, their analysts assign um, percentages that where 80% certain this is accurate or 90 or 50 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then the, the deputy director for national for the CIA reports to the deputy director of national intelligence, and right. they help prepare the book that goes to the president every day. And so it's a it, guessing game, really. Right. So it sounds like to me, um, you know, that, that the United States has been spying on its own people prior to 9-11 then. I can you have to have the clearance to know this for sure, but let me tell you a really quick story. And mm-hmm. so it's 19, early 1968. And, uh, and I have just finished my advanced training and we're, and we're waiting for assignments and, and a group of us were assigned to listen in to both voice and manual Morris code communications from a group of, suspected Soviet intelligence agents that were trying to um, escalate racial tensions in America. So, and that happened throughout late 67, 68, and even early 69. I don't remember what they, uh, what that project name was, but the top secret code word associated with it, which is no longer in use was was secret saving and but so we had we had intelligence students just graduating spying on America because it wasn't just Soviet USSR agents there was a a, a piece of that that were American citizens who were sympathizers with the Soviets and believed that that we needed to um, encourage racial strife in America. Right. So yeah, we we have listened. We listen in on our friends. There's a there's a whole there used to be. Keep in mind, I retired almost thirty years ago, twenty nine years ago. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So things may have changed, but when I was in, there was a whole group in the National Security Agency, back in those days, it was known as W Group, that their job was to listen to our friendly nations, the United Kingdom, um, Germany, New Zealand. Uh, so we listened to them. 
they listen to us. It's everybody knows it. Everybody does it, but we intercept their communications, do our very best to decrypt it. And I guess we're just trying to make sure our friends are still really our friends. Right. Interesting. So honestly, it, it's like, like, for example, I think most, most Americans were not aware of, of this stuff until like Edward Snowden came out, you know, like 20 years ago or whatever it was. Um, but this sounds like it's going back, you know, at least as far as you were in it, which was like 50 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, 50 years ago, there had to be a compelling reason to, to listen to Americans and, and there had to be a, uh, a foreign component. Uh, I don't know how much of Ed Snowden I, I really trust. Uh, if you look at his history, he wasn't much of anything. Uh, he didn't have extremely high-level clearance, just what he needed to work for the National Security Agency as a subcontractor to another organization. And, and, uh, and yeah, I am sure even today that we capture, we being the National Security Agency, capture cell phone calls and, and even, even landline calls. There are, there are a million different ways to do it, but we don't keep that stuff. I, I happen to know back in, in the early 60s, Seymour Cray was one of the biggest computer engineers on the planet. And every time he came up with a new computer, the very first person to buy it and test it was uh -huh. the National Security Agency. They had a whole basement at Friendship Annex in Fort Meade, Maryland, that was nothing but computers. And what those things did was they listened to voice communications looking for specific keywords and phrases. You know, uh, uh, they might be looking for a name. They might look, be looking for uh, bomb threats. If you didn't find those keywords, nobody recorded that stuff because they didn't care. Mm -hmm. But so a keyword had to trigger it. Now, what they do today, I, I don't know. But I do know that even with existing technology, there is no way in the world that any organization can capture all the cell phone messages out of America today and store it for any period of time at all. It's simply too much data. You got to figure that there are more cell phones in America than they are people. <laughs> there, there, are, there are billions of cell phone calls a day. And an average telephone conversation lasts about three minutes and is anywhere from three to six megabytes of data. So you take about a conservative number. You take 500 million phone calls a day, each one three megabytes, and you try to find the storage for that. They simply don't do it. You know, do we accidentally sometimes pick up people? And sometimes even on purpose, because if you have an American talking to a foreign national, and that foreign national, he may be the most innocent person on the planet, but let's say that he has a friend that is a little bit less innocent or who we're unsure of. In trapping that foreign national's communication with you, they also trap and keep your conversation, whether there's anything meaningful in it or not. So yeah, it, it happens. It, it happens every day, hundreds of thousands of times. 
So yeah, we listen to our own people. The UK listens to their own people. Germany listens to their own people. We're paranoid. The whole world is paranoid. Is any of this productive? Has anything ever come out of all this eavesdropping? Um, well, I mean, obviously it didn't work for 9-11. No, it did not work. And that's, a, that's another story because I think, I don't think that we knew the exact date and time, but I think the intelligence community had an idea that something was going on. They just didn't figure out what it was fast enough. Um, but, but a good example is, um, let me think, um, Yasser Arafat, if his name appeared in any communication, no matter what it was, even back in the days when I was in, that triggered what in those days was called a critic alert. So you're in a intelligence organization in the national security agency or one of the military subcomponents, and you hear something, let's say, and Arafat's name was mentioned. Well, we also had direction finding equipment. So we were able to at least pinpoint the area and sometimes the exact location of where that communication came from. Mm -hmm. So the combination of a location and the mention of the name Arafat triggered a critical alert. So critical alert, basically, there's a whole network uh, of data transmission that belongs to the intelligence community. When you send a critical alert, everything on that wire, on that internet connection, on that radio, however the communication works, everything shuts down worldwide. And that critical alert goes out to every intelligence site in the world to see if they can trap the same kinds of conversations, if they can find a, a more defined location. So they take action on the critical art. Uh, we did it, believe it or not, I was in Japan in Christmas of 1979. Mm -hmm. So Japan should not be able to listen um, very well anyway to Afghanistan. But the team that I was working for in 1979 picked up Manuel Morse communications and VHF voice communications and alerted the world to the Soviet invasion of, of, of Afghanistan. I was actually the guy that called the critic alert. Oh, because, wow. And it got canceled. And NSA said no way and canceled it. And then about 30 minutes later, they reissued it because they didn't believe that we could hear that. But HF Morris code, uh, you can pick up skip zones because the signal bounces off the ionosphere. So we were able to pick up that. We were able to, to pick up the voice. Everybody thought it was a training exercise until our direction finding equipment placed the Soviet, I think it was the 40th battalion, 40th regiment, something inside the borders of Afghanistan. So, yeah, I've had some I've had some boring times and I've had some good times um, working intelligence for almost twenty two years. Wow. It's a it's 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 a it's pretty cool job. That, that's an important piece of history, though. Too it was was that invasion because that's kind of um, you know what brought Bin Laden into the picture to fight the Soviets, isn't that? It, 
what it, they that, did. And and then he got mad because we sort of abandoned him and got revenge on us. That, that is exactly right. You know, they um, that's where he rose to prominence. Uh, and, and it's where we should have learned our lesson that nobody wins in Afghanistan. Yeah. So Yeah, the Soviets, what, what were they there, 10 years or more? And really made as little progress as we've made because, the, well, I don't know the reasons why I'm not a politician, <laughs> you know, but, but um, it, we tend not to learn our lesson. We should learn a lesson in Vietnam, but that's just my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did that for uh, almost, for almost 22 years. Uh, I was stationed in uh, Taipei, Taiwan and uh, Germany in Japan a couple of times, uh, in the Philippines, in Thailand, um, all over the world. We have listing posts. Uh, these days, it's probably not listing posts. It's probably satellites, I would think. Uh-huh. But you're but still doing the same thing. We're doing exactly the same thing. We trap every piece of communication we can. We analyze it. It's either valuable or it's not if it's not valuable it gets it it goes in the circular file and we forget about it if it is valuable even minimally valuable you could get a you could get a piece of information that that is just the slightest hint of something going on and you got to keep it to, to see if you can build on it if something else comes in that makes it more or less valid so uh uh managing the data that you collect i if you didn't have half the computers on the planet setting in NSA, I don't know how we'd ever do that, you know? Uh, and and you got to remember that the NSA is mirrored in the UK with um, GCHQ, and it's also mirrored in New Zealand because we have that, that five eyes consortium of the five countries that, um, that, combine their intelligence sources, at least in the electronic sphere. I don't know about what the, if they that includes human intelligence. Uh, but it, in the electronic area, you know, America, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, all combine their resources to help protect what, the, what I guess, what they would call the, the free world, the free nations of the world. So, with that much information gathering, there has to be a lot of people, a lot of manpower involved. Um, are are these people told to keep all the information that they pick up classified and not to talk about it in the public, or uh, like even like their families? Yeah, exactly. So um, when you first, when I first became associated with the Army Security Agency, and we went to training we would spend three quarters of the day on training for whatever our specialty was, whether that was voice intercept or Morse code intercept or telemetry, whatever was going on. And about a quarter of the day was, was what today I would call indoctrination. And they would talk to you about how critical it was that you never speak to anybody about what you were doing, not your wife, not your neighbors, if you were not located inside a skiff, you know, um, 
uh, which is a secure information facility where you simply cannot eavesdrop on it. There are, there are physical and electronic countermeasures to prevent that. That's the only place you can talk about your job when you are physically in a protected area. And, uh, and we lived our life that way. And it was, and we were kind of in a, uh, in a fishbowl mm -hmm. because anybody, if you talk to somebody and then, and they, and they told another person and your command found that out, you probably, if you stayed in the military at all, you, if you were in the army, you ended up in an infantry unit with your clearance completely stripped away so that you could never know anything again. And the clearance levels, I mean, you see the movies that talk about above top secret. Yeah. There's no such thing as above top secret. There are, there are code words. There are special sensitive protected code words. So, so in those code words give you additional access. Like, I don't know if it's true today, but 30 years ago, you could have a top secret clearance and then appended to that was special intelligence, which basically meant um, in, the, in the electronic world, you were eavesdropping on someone else. And then you might have another symbol beside it that said like TK. TK was tangent keyhole and that was um, satellite imagery. So that meant you had access to that. If you didn't have that little that little symbol, that TK after your top secret clearance, you couldn't see that stuff and you probably didn't even know about it. Hmm. So everything was compartmentalized. Uh, top secret was a general form. And then, you know, you had Tajan Kehoe, you had Duckbill, you had Gamma, you had a thousand different names. Uh, and each of those was a, was a separate compartmented area of intelligence. If you hadn't been briefed on it, signed a paper, swore you'd never ever talk about it unless somebody else had the same clearance, uh, they, you, they simply didn't talk about it. And I spent 20 years mm -hmm. not talking to my wife about what I did. Wow. So, you know, like one of the arguments that like whenever there's a government conspiracy, one of the arguments that debunkers always say is like, well, the government can't keep a secret. <laughs> so, so obviously it sounds like they can keep secrets. Well, they can, especially if they threaten you with prison and stuff like that, you know, and, and, uh, and even though we were indoctrinated on that stuff all the time we went through training, I don't really think I took it serious until, I don't know, somewhere around 1970. I was in Taipei, Taiwan. And I was, I was on a break. We, uh, we worked really weird schedules, you know, six days on, two days off, that kind of stuff. And it was one of my days off. And I was sitting in a little bar uh, in downtown Taipei. And, uh, and there was a sailor, obviously, just so drunk, he, well, he was passed out in a, in a puddle, I swear to God, of his own puke. <laughs> And then next to him was an airman because it was a combined base. It actually was, it was an air force base that had a small army and Marine presence. So I'm drinking that Chinese beer or Taipei beer. And, um, and then, and this little barmaid is asking the air force guy what he does. And he's saying, well, I'm a traffic analyst, you know, and, uh, 
traffic analyst kind of sounds a lot like how many cars can I put on a road of this size? <laughs> and, you know, that kind of, but it's yeah. not. Traffic analyst is, is I am uh, using, uh, I am deciphering uh, electronic communications, what it came, where it came from, what it says, who it's targeting, what it's talking about. So he proceeded to tell her that. And he is like right in the middle of this long spiel that was basically ending up going, I'm a spy. And all of a sudden this passed out Navy guy sets up out of the puddle of puke, grabs him, slaps him in handcuffs, drags him to the door. And it turns out he wasn't drunk at all. And I don't, it, it was either, either chicken stew or I uh, hope to God it wasn't real puke, and, <laughs> but he was, his job was to sit in the bar and catch you telling stuff you weren't supposed to be telling. And, and so at that point, the idea of people are listening and will lock you up if you share your secrets became very real to me, you know? Wow. But before that, I, you know, you listen to it and, you, uh-huh. and you're, and you're not going to just, you know, put it on a newspaper site or something or, or, or talk to your friendly downtown Chinese agent, but, but it's not really real in your head until you see somebody get carried away. I never saw that airman again. So I don't know if he went to jail or they, or they debriefed him, took away his clearance and, shipped him off to Alaska to load the back of C-130s. I don't know what happened to him, but, um, but you know, the um, military intelligence is uh, sometimes we do weird things too, you know, and, uh, and we spent the entire, from what, 19, early 1970s until the late 1980s investigating psychic phenomena. Right, yeah, and that's what we're um, we're gonna get get to now, is um, you know, I guess it was called Project Stargate, right? Yep, that's what it was called. The CIA called it Stargate. It had many names before that, but mm-hmm. every time a different organization got control of it, they gave it a different name. But and, and how did you find out about it? Like, is this something that everybody was aware of, or did you find out? about it through some kind of secure channel? Well, <laughs> it, it's really funny that you should ask that. Um, uh, I was part of Stargate and didn't even realize it um, because it was so secret that even the people they were trying to train on out-of-body experiences and remote viewing and such weren't told what the project was, at least not initially. I um, actually found out about it when the rest of the world did in September of 1995 when the CIA declassified it and told the world that they had been doing this and now they weren't doing it anymore. Hmm. So, so, uh, and that's a interesting story. I think we have time for me to summarize it. Uh, oh, we got plenty of time. We got all yeah. day. So, uh, so let's say back in, uh, 1968, 69, um, there were rumors coming out of, uh, of the Soviet Union that specifically Russia, that they were investigating the military value of psychic phenomena. And, um, 
you know, you're in the middle of a cold war and whatever they're doing, you got to be doing because what if they're right and you're not? Uh, I think that's kind of how, how it went, but, but there was these two, um, I guess you would call them investigative journalists, although they talked about many things over their career. Um, um, Sheila Ostrander and Lynn Schroeder started hearing rumors of this. Uh, they, made, they made contact with a Soviet biochemist named Edward uh, Namov and got invited to go to Moscow in 1968. So they go there and this guy um, starts taking them to different facilities where, they're, where the Soviets are investigating telepathy, um, psychic healing, uh, uh, psychokinesis. Uh, they, were even, they even had a, a piece where they were trying to enhance telepathy by connecting a human up to electronic diodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wrote a book, an exhaustive book, called um, Psychic Secrets. Is that what it is? Uh, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. They published it in 1970. The U.S. military got their hands on it and completely freaked out. You know, so um, they engaged with what was then the Stanford Research Institute, I think it's now SRI International, and had them start investigating it. And uh, you had Yuri Geller, you had Ingo Swan, uh, people that in the tests that were done by SRI seemed to actually demonstrate that, you know, like bending spoons right. and, uh, and telepathy and was all possible. And th- and their results were good enough that the that the military started experimenting with it. Now, there's a long history behind that of different organizations doing different things, you know, and and it would get funded out of the black ops budget, and and maybe maybe the Air Force did it for a while, and and it was called MK Ultra Mind mm-hmm. Control, right? Uh, when I became involved in it unknowingly to me was as late as 1984 and it had moved from I don't even remember who had it before us and but it got transferred and I think it was from the Defense Intelligence Agency to the United States Army Intelligence and Security Command before that it was Grill Grill Flame Project Grill Flame and as soon as the INSCOM picked it up, it got renamed to the Center Lane Project. So, so it's January 1984. I'm in uh, at a base in Japan, northern Japan, which is nothing more than a giant listening post that has every component of the military intelligence community you can think of. We had Navy, Air Force, Army, Marines, everybody there. And um, uh, my colonel calls me in and he says, you got to go back to the world to do some training. And I said, what kind of training is a, he says, it beats the hell out of me. I don't know. General Stubblebine called me, told me you'd be getting your orders. He picked you to go to this training. Well, I knew General, General Stubblebine. I had met him several times, both um, 
in official training and just wandering the halls of Arlington Hall Station. But it, it's not like we were buddies. I didn't go out and drink beer with him. I just, I just knew him, and he was a, he was a, a very personable man. Anybody who has watched the movie that was called "The Men Who Stare at Goats," yeah, would be aware of Stubblebine. I, I think in that movie the general was called Hopgood or something like that, but it was clearly General Stubblebine they were talking about. You know, the guy that tried to walk through walls and all that stuff. I don't know. The general that I knew, that I talked to, that I was associated with, the guy that that in the end of it befriended me to a certain extent, I never saw him do any of that stuff. Ben Spoons, absolutely. He had twisted silverware laying on his desk. You know, and there, and I went to a briefing one time where he was talking about the future of intelligence, and that he and that kind of morphed from electronic countermeasures and electronic uh, intercept to the power of the human mind, and his belief that every single person has a certain set of powers that can be developed. So he did talk about it, and he did pass twisted silverware around right. even in that meeting to his senior non-commissioned officers and his junior officers. But other than that, I mean, it was the oddest thing I ever saw him do or ever heard him talk about, but, but he truly believed in this. And, and at some point he became aware that, that what in those days was called the Monroe Institute of Applied Sciences right. was, um, was involved in, out-of-body experiences and he thought maybe that there might be an intelligence value in that so they contracted with Robert Monroe to to take people through training and and there really were at least three stages and the first stage was simply they did a test scenario with a small handful four or five six people to see what happened and when these people started talking about um being able to travel out of body and to describe things that physically dislocated from where they were and, and things like that. Then they moved to phase two, which was let's send groups of 24 people and let's evaluate how well they do. And those people who appear to be most suited, we'll call them out and send them to advanced training. And from there, they'll go to a, organization that their total job is to gather intelligence through psychic means. So I didn't know that. I got orders saying, uh, you're going to go to a rapid acquisition personnel training thing. And I went, okay. I, <laughs> like, what <okay."> is that? <laughs> that, that was the, and that was the code name for the INSCOM Center Lane Project. But I didn't know it back then until I got my, my paperwork. And I had to do, I had to take personality tests. I had to go spend two hours with a shrink. I had to do all kinds of things before I was even allowed to go. And then they included in it a, um, an article from, uh, seemed to me like it was Mother Earth News. One of, the, one of their reporters had gone to the Monroe Institute, I don't know, a year or so before. And he talked about, he talked about being able to do out of body he talked about speaking to a dead relative. Uh, he was totally amazed at all the things that happened. 
part of that article was why the uh, general stopped by picked the Monroe Institute. So I went there in January of 1984. And uh, I could go into several hours of the things that happened. Everything from, from meeting a wolf to psychic sex that freaked me out uh-huh. to, 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 to looking into the future and mm-hmm. predicting what was going to, all of those things happened. We had a, we had a guy, his last name, if I remember correctly, was Pemberton that um, in the, in the middle of this training, we got, so the training was, <clears throat> we listened to what Robert Monroe calls binaural beats. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually been experimenting with those lately. <laughs> have you? Yeah. I let me, we, if you're interested and only if you're interested, uh, I probably shouldn't do this. I have the original tapes. When we left that training, the Monroe Institute gave everybody a set of tapes. And it, those tapes are, are what they call the gateway journey. So, and it, it takes you through the process needed to get to out-of-body experiences, to get to visiting what he called other energy systems, which I call alternate realities. Okay. Uh, I have all those in digital format hidden out on the web and a, I, I could give you access to that if you wanted to experiment. Oh, I would love to. I, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> but so it so you know what binaural beats are and yes. for your mm-hmm. for your for your audience, uh it, it, it's pretty simple. We know that the human brain, depending on what you're doing, uh let's let's say vibrates at certain electronic frequencies. And uh Robert Monroe's belief, and well, it's not just a belief, it's, it's, we know it for a fact that there is a range, uh, four to seven kilohertz, I think is what it is, that's called theta waves. So right. your theta waves is, is you're not asleep, but you're not really awake. You're in that little twilight zone between being aware and drifting off into dreamland. That state is, is associated with creativity. Um, musicians creating a new song, artists painting a, a, a new picture. Well, if you put electrodes on them, many of those fall into that theta state as right. they enter that creativity. It seems like that same thing happens if you, if you want to travel out of body or if, or if you have that ability. Mm-hmm. So, and Robert, a lot of his stuff is like, closely held secret. So I don't know all of it. I just know that, that Robert Monroe himself, I got to speak to him several times when he was alive and I was in that training. Um, he said that he overlaid these binaural beats so that you got a, a, a mixture of things, but one of them was to induce that, that theta wave state to, to put you into that, that area of creativity. And, and uh, so we did that. Um, it was, it was, I can tell you, I'm 72 years old. I, I've done, I've done some, some things in my life that to me were amazing. Um, you know, like I just told you, I was the guy 
when the Soviets in, yeah. came into Afghanistan, I was, I was, my team was the people who did the KAL 007 shoot down. Uh, I was the guy personally that intercepted the communications when Mao Zedong died and we had to tell the world. I, I've been in on a lot of cool things in my life. I mean, a lot of it was boring. A lot of intelligence is boring. Right. And with these sudden peaks that are amazing. But this Incredible. thing, this Monroe, this was in my 72 years, it is absolutely the most amazing thing I've ever done. I, I, I didn't believe it at, at first, and, but, it, but Robert Monroe's tapes, which, which I will share with you, um, is probably illegal since I don't, but as long as I don't give them to the world, it's fine. Because they sell those. You can, you can do that today. Mm-hmm. You can buy those tapes and do it at home. I would recommend that if you want to spend a few bucks, that you go to the Monroe Institute and do that personally, because part of my training was we had complete isolation from the world. We weren't allowed to, to make, there wasn't a phone that I know of. And of course it was, it was pre cell phone days. We weren't allowed to have watches. Uh, we had no idea. There was no time inside that building. There was not, there was a clock, one clock that had no hands, no numerals on it. And Robert Monroe said that that, that, device represented what he called no time, which is one of the states of awareness that he can teach you to get to so that you are able to peer into the future. That's his claim. And, and, and I can tell you that I believe it worked and I'll tell you that story too. Yes. Uh, but anyway, so, so you're in complete isolation. There's okay. nobody to talk to except for the people around you. There's nothing to do. Uh, you can walk around the grounds. You can, and it's a beautiful area up in the Blue Ridge. Um, you you can talk to the other people. You can talk to the training staff there, and you go through these one-hour sessions where he takes you through the various stages of his process to get you to out-of-body experiences. Now, the, what I went through was a was a enhanced version. Um, the typical gateway voyage takes you what he Robert Monroe calls focus three, which is the beginning stages, focus 10, focus 12, and not beyond that. But, but in, in the specialized training that I took, we had a thing that's called, he took us to focus 15, which is that state of no time where you're encouraged to travel beyond the boundaries of your current time and focus 21, which is, where you investigate what he called other energy systems and I call other realities. It, mm-hmm. it, we, of the 24 people there, uh, one of them went nuts and got taken away, <laughs> you know, and I don't know if he went nuts. There is no knowledge of what happened to him after he was physically removed. Huh. And it did, and it did come out later that Pemberton had had a previously undisclosed psychological problem. And then the rumors spread. There are some that say he's still locked up in a cell somewhere at Fort Meade, uh, not knowing what's going on. And other people say that after a, a day or a week or whatever, he was right back to normal. But but I don't know because they didn't tell us the answer to that. But anyway, so so um, what's the most interesting part? Um, on the last day of the training, 
uh, Robert Monroe took us to, to focus 15. So part of the way that this, that I visualize this, and I think it's pretty individual, was as he takes you through these stages, I, I kind of pictured myself, first of all, entering a, like a natural cavern. Okay. And on the, and in that cavern, there is a, there's a, a granite block and then granite block is shot through with this clear quartz sitting on top of that block is a teak, what I would call a steamer trunk from the 1920s, dark, well-oiled. It's got these leather straps. Your job is to open that trunk and put everything inside it. Put all your monetary worries, all your worries about are people going to like me or are they going to read my book? Am I going to make any money? Is that girl going to marry me? Whatever. And your body, take off your body like a suit of clothes, stuff it in the box, close the lid, forget about it. Once you do that, you turn away from the I turned away from the box. And there's a steps that lead to this rock formation that spirals up and you reach a, at the top after climbing a long way. There's a giant tree bare branches with moss growing about halfway up the side. And I'd stick my hands into this deep, deep crevice bark and swing around it. And in front of me, I see the universe. I mean, there are, I see stars, I see galaxies and you, and there are pathways leading through the stars. And Robert Monroe's voice says, picture a giant wagon wheel. And along the edges of the wagon wheel, around each spoke, there's a date, there's a year. Pick out next year. Walk down that spoke till you get to the center and tell me what you see. So I do that. I visualize that spoke. It's okay. floating out there in the middle of the universe. I walk across this path through the stars to it. Go around the rim till I find the 19... 85 and I walk down it and I, I don't open eyes. I don't, I don't make things up. I just, all of a sudden I have this vision of, of a, of a blue sky with wispy white clouds and below me, there's the ocean. And at first I don't see anything. And then in a second or two, I see a ship and it's kind of indistinct. It looked like a boat, but it looked like there were like, trees or something, fingers sticking up in the air off of it. And I could see a couple of very dimly outright numbers on it. Uh, and I thought I saw three and, and, and another number I don't recall at the moment. And, and then all of a sudden there are, there are missiles arcing over the horizon, headed for that boat. I didn't see it hit the boat because about that time everything went away and Monroe called us back. Mm -hmm. So I wrote it down on a piece of paper and I figured, okay, 1985, something bad's going to happen. And we gave the papers to the general, what he did with them. I have no clue. And, um, but it was, so we're in the meeting. People are talking about what they, many people saw not exactly what I saw, but similar things. Okay. And then we had two people stand up and go, this is bullshit. It's always been bullshit. You're wasting military money. Uh, and it turned out that someone, I, I don't know who the, 
politics in the military is not so very different than politics in corporate America, I can tell you that. But some high-ranking individual had infiltrated uh, Stubblebine's group with two people. And these two people, it should have been obvious, and looking back on it, it was. Um, they didn't interact with anyone else. They never talked about what they did or did not encounter during the training sessions. Um, those two people and their report that, that we were engaged in psychobabble crap and the fact that, that Doug Pemberton had kind of lost it out there. It, it, I mean, they found the man naked walking across the grounds, playing with these fingers and mumbling stuff. So, yeah. so he, had a, he had a really bad experience. Those things uh, I know from talking to General Stubblebine the last time that I saw him, that he was given a choice. You can, you can retire and move away from this stuff and you'll be fine, or we can investigate you and imprison you for human experimentation. And he chose to retire. And uh, it, and that was one of the problems with with the uh, Inscom Center Lane with CIA Stargate. Throughout it all, I mean, there especially in the military, there there was a, a psychological component. A psychologist had to, or psychiatrist had to, had to write off on this stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and throughout the experiment, they were going, guys, this is human experimentation. It's illegal. And and they got around it by saying, well, we're not giving them drugs and we're not right. hypnotizing them. And But it was always, a, every year it was brought up, you better be careful, you better be careful. Um, so General Stubblebine, to me, was a man ahead of his time because I believe in this stuff. I, I've experienced it. I've seen it. Um, uh, you can do it. You can. The people listening to me can. If they can get, if they purchase these tapes, if they go to the Monroe Institute, it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a non-believer. They will show it to you, and they do the same thing today that they did 36 years ago. Uh, every, I mean, they they cover the gamut. Obviously, you you can go to the to the the simple gateway experience and and experience some of this stuff. But there are other programs beyond that that are specifically to teach you to to, to visit other realms, you know. And, and, and speaking of other realms, I, I am, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I am. Maybe I believe too easily. But, but I, I, I have a firm belief in my head that these quantum physicists who talk about multiple worlds, multiple realities, parallel universes. I, honest to God, believe they're right. So one of the things that that Moreau took us through during that training was called um, Focus 21, Other Energy and Energy Systems. So he takes us through that. We go to this state, and his only instruction was explore. So I'm sitting there, and, and you got to picture this. Picture the, the, what it would feel like to float in a cloud, right. and, but in complete darkness. There's nothing around you. There's no sensory input at all, except for you're wearing headsets with those binaural beats, which really is below the 
human level of perception is entering your brain, but you don't actually hear that beep going on. And all of a sudden, it, all of a sudden you're flying and you're flying over this rocky, gray, dusty expanse and, you, and your first thought is, I'm flying across the moon. Looks like the moon to me. There's big rocks, there's craters, there's dust. There's not a hell of a lot of color. Mostly it's all gray, uh-huh. you know? And then, so I'm flying like a bird. I'm dipping close to the ground and going through these canyons and crevices. And all of a sudden I feel like, like a fish must feel. Somebody's hooked me with something and they're pulling me. So I let myself flow toward whatever is pulling me and my feet touch the ground and dust puffs up. And I, and I look around and, and it's not barren anymore. These, these weird looking, I guess you call them shrubs. They're not really trees. They look like, um, they look like those, um, I don't remember what those plants my mom had were called, but they're like you would find in the, in a cactus or, uh, you know, they're, they're puffy and they're full of liquid and, and they've got, and these things have arms with these ugly purplish red bulbs hanging off of them and like a fruit. And then I, I beat, I continue to feel this pulling sensation. So I turn around and there is this person. This person is, I don't know, maybe a little taller than me, uh, completely covered with a really fine gray fur, uh, almost like a moss. I can see the tips of some kind of wings above his shoulders. I didn't have any, I, I didn't think, I didn't think angel because I, the wings were felt more like bat mm-hmm. wings than that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and his, if you had lips at all, it was just a really thin line, these big bulbous eyes. And I, but I felt that creature smiling. And then he reached out toward me with his, with his hands, which were not human, but similar, uh, thick fingers. I think there were four on each hand, but his palms are up. And I heard him say in my mind, welcome to my home, welcome, friend. And I have, I felt close to him. I felt like I knew this, and I'm saying him, I had no idea, right. but if they were, it did appear to be nude, but except for the fur, and I saw no sexual organs of any kind. Um, and when Robert Monroe called me back from that place, all I remember, the thing I remember most is being sad to leave. You know, uh, that was not our world. That was not, prob- I don't believe it was in this universe. I believe I'd step next door one step uh-huh. to another potential reality. Uh, and I know that some of your people listening to this are going to think I'm absolutely nuts, but I, I believe that's true. Uh, I believe that, I believe that, that I don't believe that we can die here on this planet. I believe that we can, but I don't, I think we continue. And I think uh-huh. that there, I think that there's a quantum piece to that maybe we step sideways into another reality mm-hmm. or, uh, I don't know I, I don't know what happens I just believe that something happens and and what we ends here is not the end everywhere absolutely and, and, and actually I totally agree with you um, you know I, I've had an experience where I had a seizure 
and I lost consciousness. And, and I swear that I was in another dimension because I remember the colors and the sound and, and, and not feeling afraid. So I, I totally, um, you know, agree that uh, this is not the only reality and that when we die and leave this body that, that, that there's a whole lot more to experience. I believe so too. And, and maybe at 72, maybe that's just wishful thinking, but, but I believe it with my whole heart, you know, but let me, um, let me finish this story about yes. seeing the future because it didn't work out so well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I have these picture in my head and I'm going, ah, 1985, that's where it's going to happen. You know? Um, so I'm still in Japan, 1985 comes and, and it goes and, and, uh, and I'm going, well, heck, I guess I was wrong, you know? And, uh, and during that time, well, was it 85? It, in late 1984, uh, we learned that General Stubblebine was going to leave the military and he came. So I went to my Colonel who was a complete butt by the way, um, and I said, I need to talk to the general. He's like, well, you can't talk to the general. Well, why not? Because you'll say bad things about my command. Um, and I go, it, it, I told him, I said, Colonel Brenny, it's not about you, okay? I need to talk to him. He goes, well, you can't. So I says, you know, all I got to do is make a phone call, Colonel. And he goes, and he goes, God damn it, man. And okay, you, okay, I'll give you some time. So, so I guess it was in May of that year because he retired late in the summer. He came by. We briefed him on what was going on inside the uh, the skiff. And, um, and then we're walking out, and he comes up to me, and he goes, and he links his arm through mine and says, let's go. Well, you know, generals travel with like 12 other people everywhere they go. <laughs> and he just dis, he dismissed them and said, "This is not about you." So we walk out down the hallway, and it and it's a it's a big building. There's no windows anywhere. There's there's a copper shields everywhere. Anyway, we're walking down this long hallway, and I'm asking him, you know, what what happened? What comes next? You know, it's like we did this, and there's nowhere to go. And he told me, he goes, well, no, they're, they're, they shut us down. They're, they're sending me away. They shut down the whole thing. And I go, well, what good is it, General? What, what happens? What happens to us? What happens to the people who, who felt these things, saw these things, experienced these things? What do we do now? And he goes, I, he says, Here, I can't help you, son. I can't help you. He says, I can only tell you that you were where you were meant to be. I picked you. I recognized you the first time I saw you. I knew that you needed to be there. I sent you there. You were exactly where you were supposed to be. And, and as for what I did, he go, he smiled at me, this big smile. And he goes, I planted seed corn and it's going to grow. You'll see it grow. And, and then he said goodbye to me and walked out the door and I never saw him again, but he's right that experiment planted the seed corn that led to DIA renamed it something. I don't know what. And then the CIA called it Stargate. Stargate was actually a huge, huge umbrella program. The piece of it that, that 
interested the army was the remote viewing piece. Uh, uh, there are rumors that there was a group of people out at um, in Fort Bragg that did what what in the movies and and in some books you hear it called Project Jedi, mm-hmm. and that and that was the men who stare at goats. Anybody in this listening, you have either through the Freedom Information website, um, you can even look up uh, Stargate site, and there every single document going back to I found one back in 1957, where the military was interested and involved. All those documents. Well, that's let me put a caveat on that. CIA says all those documents have been declassified and they're available. I don't believe that for a minute. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I I think that I think that when the CIA went Stargate is dead and gone, that it got a new name, that it moved even deeper into the black ops budget, and I believe it's that in some form, in some location, it exists today. That right. I have zero proof of that, but everybody in the world has access to those files. They're they're not sorted by by name or date or, or event, you have to go through potentially hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of files. <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. You, <laughs> you know, if, you, if you know a few things, if you know Center Lane Project, if you know, uh, if you know some, some names, uh, Ingo Swan, Yuri um, um, uh, Geller, you're you're probably going to find something out there. Uh, what was that guy's name? Pat something. Pat Buchanan, maybe. Uh, there was one guy who was so good at this um, at this remote viewing, and th- that it was it was Pat Price. Uh-huh. Pat Price was so good at this. He found he found top secret military installations accidentally. That he went, that he drew pictures of Soviet sites that were almost as good as a photograph. Pat had Artek died before things could get really into it deeply, but he was one of the main reasons the military went. Uh, we got to get into this, you know. Um, if you look up um, the last names uh, Putoff, P-U-T-H-O-F-F, or Targ, they were. American physicists that were really deep into the SRI experiment, and uh, and at the end, at the end of, of 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 everything, and I don't think you can find it out there anymore. But I may post it and share it on my um, on my OneDrive site for people who are interested. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, the CIA commissioned an organization to uh, to investigate and uh there were two there were two it's really weird the way the military does stuff so there were two investigators um one was dr jessica utz who believed that that remote viewing psychic phenomena was possible and the other was if i can find his name on my long list of data that I was going to share with you. Um, come on, what's your name? Uh, my name? Gary. 
<laughs> yeah. His name, his name, I, it was Ray Hyman, H-Y-M-A-N. Yeah. So Ray was a skeptic. Uh, Jessica Hutz was open to it, at least open to the investigation. So at the end of it, uh, Jessica Hutz said, I see some things going on here that cannot be explained statistically. I think it needs more investigation. I think there could be something real here. Yes. Um, Dr. Hyman went, yeah, there's inconsistencies, but I think it's uh, testing inconsistencies. And I think you ought to get rid of it because it's not real. Mm-hmm. So, so they got rid of it because they didn't think it was real. Or they say that they did. The, <laughs> what I take from that is if you're open to something, if you're willing to halfway believe it, if you're willing to, to give it a chance, you might well find it. You probably will find it. But if you, if you deny that even the possibility, if you're that much of a skeptic, the truth can slap you in the faith, face and you're still going to deny it. I think that belief has a lot to do with success when you're doing the psychic thing. Uh, James Randi was never, ever going to be successful at, at any psychic thing he attempted. Yuri Keller, on the other hand, probably would be. You know, I, I don't know. I, that's, just, that's just what I believe, you know. Um, and I started this last piece of this conversation by telling you what I was, was going to, how the end of that trip to the uh, future came about. So, you know, and I know, 1985, nothing happened. So then along comes 1986, and I'm going, uh, and I'm going, well, nothing's still going to happen. And then in May of that year, May, middle of May of that year, I'm sitting at the kitchen table thinking about going to work, and and the news comes on, and and all of a sudden there's pictures of the USS Stark. You know, and and it was it was in the Indian Ocean. I don't remember where it was, but I think so. And it and it turns out it was our friends, the Israelis fired a couple of missiles at it and blew it up. So I'm looking at the pictures and they match what I saw in my vision almost perfectly. I'm looking at that number the number three on the side, the number one on the side, I'm seeing the things that look like trees are, are these giant antenna arrays because guess what? It was really an intelligence gathering ship, you know? Okay. And uh, I saw enough stuff to believe that that was the, the ship from my vision, the, the, the missiles work, the location work, the, the, antenna arrays, the numbers on the side, everything worked for me. Did I paint a perfect picture? Absolutely not. Did I get the, did I get the year wrong? Well, yeah, you know, uh, by at least one year. Uh, but to me, that picture of the USS Stark that I saw on TV matched my vision well enough for me to believe that I took a brief trip to a future state and saw this thing happen. And the 21 of the other 23 people saw similar things. So it wasn't uh-huh. just me, you know. So there's confirmation. I mean, so, so, so there's actually a scientific method here. 
there are scientific methods in it. And um, uh, I believe that, that uh, Monroe and General Stubblebein were applying those scientific methods. Um, and uh, the CIA, they got into that really deep into remote viewing, the ability to travel out of your body to a remote location and report back on what you see. They got even more scientific with it. And even though they did away with it, or say they did away with it, um, they had some successes that that we couldn't get anywhere else. And um, and they documented those. Now, they documented failures too. I mean, it, it appears that this, this psychic ability is not well understood. Um, I don't know that we know how to trigger it. I don't know that we know how to control it. Some people, it just happens naturally. Others can be trained to it, uh, but maybe it's not such a natural thing. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but if, if, if people were interested, I would recommend they read Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. Um, jo- Joseph Monagle uh, wrote a book about it. Um, uh, about the specifically about Stargate, um, and that if you can find his book, um, it would be it would be worth reading. Uh, I'm trying to. I think it was called uh, Memoirs of a Psychic Spy, mm-hmm. and it's probably he wrote a, another one called Mind Trek: Exploring Consciousness time and space through remote viewing. Uh, he was probably the most successful author. There were a, a lot of people that once the uh, CIA made this known, there were quite a number of books that came out. Some of them, in, in my personal opinion, uh, were simply an attempt to make money. Right. Uh, and uh, it, it, which, I mean, that happens, right? I mean, yeah. I wrote a book about it. It was 25 years later, but but my book's still out there. And it, you know, I'm never going to be a famous author and uh, I keep finding mistakes in editing the content. Most of the mistakes are gram- grammatical because, right. you know, the first time you ever write a book in your life, it, you ter- it turns out it's not an easy task. It's you know? not at all. I've done it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so my book's out there. I'm, I'm not going to promote it here on you. I don't think that's the right thing to do for some reason. I don't no, know you why. can, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate this. Is what actually, honestly, I'm going to say this is one of the most interesting episodes I've ever recorded, and and I'm recorded it close to a hundred. So wow, that's a good thing to hear. It's a good. I I wrote I wrote this book. I have been I have been been employed since I was twelve years old throwing newspapers off of a bicycle, and I spent all those years in the military, and I hadn't been out of the military any time at all when I decided I wanted to be a, a, a computer nerd, went to college, raised a family, got my degree, became a computer nerd, uh, lived that life for another, another 20 years, you know? I, um, uh, and then I got fired because of the great recession. First mm-hmm. time in my entire life I had been without, un, un, without employment. Right. And I was, and I was lost. I didn't know what, that's a, that is a feeling of desperation that I had never felt before. So I'm, I'm sitting there one January day and 
2009 going, and it, and I'm thinking, I got to th- really thinking about my time at the Moreau Institute and, and in the Center Lane Project and, it, and about Stargate. And I started researching it. And it, it occurred to me a few days later that, and this can't be a coincidence, the idea came to me that January day to write a book because the story was worth telling. It, 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 it impacted my life. And it, it changed who I was as a person. I believe that. I still believe that today. So, and, I, and then I go, uh, th- this can't be, this, it was exactly, exactly, almost to the minute, 25 years since the day I walked in the front door of the Murrow Institute. And so I started compiling. I got notes that I kept there. They're not great notes. I'm not a great note taker, but I've got the documents where I was invited to come. I've got notes I took while I was there. I've got some notes and some things that happened years later that I think were linked to that, that experience. You know, once you open a a psychic portal in your mind, uh, even if you ignore it, which honestly I did, you know, life gets in the way. Yeah. You're feeding the family, you're going to school, you're making a career, you know. Uh, I just let it lay by the wayside for for 25 years until I was unemployed for a year and a half, almost lost my house, and I had nothing to do but to think about that time and to rediscover some of the things that were going on and then write a book about it. And I called the book Secret Warriors, Psychic Spies, redo redo because when i first i published it in 2010 i think the first mm-hmm. time and i wrote it as a book as a work of fiction i included a lot of things that really happened but i wrote it i called it fiction because nobody is going to believe this <laughs> nobody in the world is going to believe this and then a year and a half ago i took it down off the off the amazon website and i went through it and i rewrote it and I removed, I don't know, something like 50 or 60,000 words that were all fictional content. And I left it exactly the way I remember it. Uh, how I met the wolf, how I got involved, every day by day experience while I was there, the, the disappointment of when, the, when it, the general had to retire and things went away and I, and I couldn't get back into it. There was no way back, you know? Um, and I captured all that, all the, all the events, all the feelings that went with it, the, the effort to reconnect with the tapes that I had at home mm-hmm. and, the, and the success I had with that. Uh, and I just laid it all on the line. It's, it's a personal journey. It's a psychic journey. It's a military secrets journey, you know, uh, and I'm, to this day, I'm not a great author. I've got three books out there on Amazon and this one is a memoir. It's a, it's factual. It's truthful. Uh, in some ways it's hurtful. You know, it documents the, how my, my marriage fell apart and, and how I saw that coming before it did. And, mm-hmm. um, and all that stuff. Um, and yeah, it's got some grammatical errors in it, in it but it, not that many cause I've cleaned it up a lot. If you are interested in, in the military's involvement specifically, and and in in what did Margaret Monroe call them? Far journeys, 
Journeys Out of Body. Um, read the book. Read Robert Monroe's Far Journeys, Journeys Out of Body. Um, he, the, he's where it all started for the, for at least for the military component of it. And, and more than that, you know, I mean, if you think about it in 19, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, the whole world lit up with this, with the idea of alternate states of consciousness, curly in photography, telekinesis, tele, telepathy. I don't know what mm-hmm. happened, but, but it was widespread. It, it, since that interest has diminished somewhat, maybe a lot, but, but there for a brief period of time, uh, 10 years, let's call it, it may have been less. Anybody who, who could do anything with that, uh, bending spoons, uh, spinning paper clips on a desk, uh, uh, meditation, people going into isolation things. You don't need an isolation tank, by the way. You can get isolation in a very dark room um, with a very soft mattress or a waterbed maybe mm-hmm. uh, and just, and something to close out all sensory input, let your mind and body relax and let it go where it will. And you know what? You may just fall asleep and have a dream, but you may go somewhere unexpected. Some people do it spontaneously. It's worth a shot. Yeah. Yeah. I- I mean, like I said, like I, um, I, we were talking before the show, like I've been experimenting with the binaural beats. And yeah. um, I mean, like so far, before I can tell, I've just fallen asleep. But then again, I don't know. You know, I mean, maybe there's stuff there that I just am not remembering yet. It could very well be. I do remember. Are you there still? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, it's that all of I had a slight echo in my uh, headset, and I thought, oh, what happened? Um, when we first went to the training of the Morelli Institute, and the and the staff was talking to us, they went, they told us, they went, you may feel unsuccessful. Don't let that bother you. You may feel like all you did was fall asleep. Believe me, you did more than that. And and with practice, you will realize that something happened other than sleep. Uh-huh. It, it's a re- repetitive process. Uh, and Gary, I've got your, I think I've got your email. I yeah. will, I will send you a link to the, and play with those tapes. I have another guy that I'm talking to that is currently involved with the Moreau Institute. And he's been to several of their training exercises on site and he's bought several of their, of their DVDs and CDs. Mm-hmm. So he asked me if I would share my tapes because they are closest to Robert Monroe's original recordings, mm-hmm. closest to that analog version. And he, like many audiophiles, believe that you can't replicate that, that analog experience in a digital format. I posted them for him. He currently has access. And he told me that he was much more successful with what I put out there than than what he was getting from the DVDs and CDs that he had bought. So so I will give you access. Play with them. Please yeah. let me please let me know what you think. Oh, absolutely. And, and I would be interested. I don't have to participate in another one of your podcasts, but if you have something really good to say, if if things work for you and you have another podcast about out-of-body experiences, I'd love to, mm-hmm. to listen to that with you, even if I don't participate. Oh, you're welcome back anytime. In fact, 
I have somebody coming on, I think it's the 14th this week, who is also, he's sort of, he makes binaural beats. Like he's sort of like an expert on like all the, um, the idea of using sound to enter other dimensions. And um, he's done some research into um, Van Tassel. I don't know if you've heard of him. He made the Integratron. Yes, I've heard the name, yeah. And uh, so so this I, I, this is going to be sort of an ongoing journey for me because this is something that I'm really, really experienced. Uh, I'm not experienced, but, but really, really um, interested in. And, um, you know, and, and I also, like, like with these beads too, I kind of have discovered, like, like, for example, I was at work and I tried using it. I was thinking like, yeah, this really sucks today at work. So I'm going to try to leave my body while I'm working. Yeah. <laughs> Bad idea. <laughs> I just started to feel, <laughs> I just started to feel nauseous. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Apparently what? you really have to be, be in a relaxed state physically to do it. Yeah. It, it certainly helps, but I'll tell you this. One of the things that that Bob Monroe uh, talked us through in the later stages of this whole thing, uh, once you, let's say you get to what he called focus 10, which is, focus three is like the gateway. He calls it, he calls it uh, mind, weight, body, asleep. But focus 10 is really where you can start doing some experimentation, where you can really do out-of-body kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What he encouraged us to do is what immediately after the session is over, picture your picture how that felt. Try to internalize the feelings and the visions if you had any, travels if you had any. And and with that in your mind, he said, picture a golden coin. And on either face of that coin is stamped the number 10. And then you take a handful of six, eight, 10 very deep breaths, let them out, and then picture that coin dropping out of the sky, falling somewhere. And as it spins through the sky, you keep seeing that number 10. It hits the ground. And when it hits the ground, poof, you're in focus 10. Practice doing that, and you can get there without using the tapes. So, in my mind, it's really funny too. I've been doing that for years when I need to relax, when I need to try uh-huh. something. When I see this thing falling, not from the sky, but from overhead rafters, and it tumbles mm-hmm. through the air and, and lights coming in through a narrow window, and you can see dust motes floating in the air. That coin smacks down on a, on a wooden floor, not a polished wooden floor, an old-time wooden floor, and kind of scoots across the the floor a little bit under a chair and dust pops up and and just on the other side of the chair is like an old-time wooden bar like you might see in a western movie from the day one i've always pictured it that way and i don't have a clue why it just popped into my head and and so when when i go through that exercise that's what i see i see that coin falling from the rafters smacking down with the tin showing in my face on a wooden floor and a puff of dust mm-hmm. and the bar in the background. And I can get there. All I, I will tell you that, that I don't practice this practices regularly. So it's, so it helps me if I've stretched out in bed or on the couch and then relax. But if I picture it, I can go to focus in no tapes, no, you, you'll go through the Robert Monroe stuff and you do the, 
the PC calls resonant tuning, where you're you're humming along with a with noise, a, a piece where you're where you're relaxing to the to the repetitive sound of ocean waves. You go through the the whole mantra. You know, I am more than my physical body. Um, the, all those pieces help, but once you've got there and you can and you can firmly place yourself in your mind there with whatever tool you need, whether it's picturing that coin drop or, or just taking five deep breaths and closing your eyes and being there, whatever works for you, but different people have different methods. Mm-hmm. Um, you will be able to replicate it. That's great. So I guess like once you really learn how to get there, you can create visual tools to kind of activate it, to kind of like take a shortcut. Exactly. Exactly. That's what he taught us to do. And unfortunately, all he taught us for was focus 10, but focus 10 is that, is that, uh, is the gateway more or less, uh, uh, to everything that comes beyond actually, actually probably focus 12 is, uh, he calls that the state of expanded awareness. Um, but both of those, if you can get to one, you can get to the other. It's just, it's just making yourself available for it. Um, but yeah, yeah. You got my email. I will yes. put those, I will give you access today. Awesome. And when and okay, take, take your time, uh, play around with it. Uh, make sure I'm sure you got stereo headphones. You're using yeah. them right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you won't, you'll be pleased in it. And if we do this again at some time in the future, uh, there's more I can say about military intelligence. There's more I can say about Monroe and what I experienced there. I don't know that I want to talk to people about that entire sex episode, but, you know, being able to travel from one cubicle to another, actually that very first time involuntarily, you just, all of a sudden you're just popping in different, different people's little, I call them cubicles, but they were, Bob Moreau called them, um, uh, I don't know, holistic something, something units. I don't know, but they, but you were literally in an isolation unit. You had a, you had earphones on. It was completely dark unless you were told to turn on a light. They had a, a light with three fixtures, a blue, uh, a yellow, I think, and a red. The only one I remember ever using was a very dim red light the very first time. Uh, but you pulled that really heavy curtain, which was heavy enough to be blackout curtain and soundproof. You had headsets over your ears. It was so dark, you couldn't see anything. You couldn't hear. There were two people in a room for us. Uh, I was against one wall, and the other guy's little unit was against the far wall. I couldn't even hear him breathing or talking or doing anything. So we were effectively in an isolation unit in probably the most comfortable mattress I've ever laid on in my life. It literally was like floating on a cloud. So, so you, so yeah, we were, we were in isolation chamber. Um, we were completely deprived of outside influences. We didn't know if we were having breakfast at three in the morning or two in the afternoon. I mean, you could look out the window if you had a break and see that it was, either daylight or it wasn't, but it was January in New England with heavy clouds a lot of the time. Yeah, it could have been it could have been dawn or, or dusk. You wouldn't know. 
So, and there, there are many ways to get to alternate states of consciousness. Obviously you can try mushrooms. Mm-hmm. People have alcohol will do it. Although I don't think it's nearly as effective, but sleep deprivation will do it. Right. Even food deprivation will do it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and I'm, I am certain that we were sleep deprived and obviously an isolation chamber, which is basically what he gave us. will do it. There are as many different ways as there are people. Um, if you get too tired, uh, if, if you get too excited, if you, um, I don't know, there are many triggers is all I'm saying. And, uh, and people try different ways to do it. You know, I, I have never in my life attempted the, psychedelic route. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm just not that kind of guy. You know, it didn't work with the time and place where I grew up. And, and it certainly didn't work with my time in military intelligence. The <laughs> fastest way to get thrown out was to beat someone say that you did something as simple as, as smoke marijuana and boom, you were gone. No right. questions asked. But they did experiment with it. I actually interviewed somebody named, um, I think it was a uh, Dr. Richard Allen Miller. And, and, and he did research um, with Navy SEALs and psychedelics. Oh. So so they were doing it. Yeah. I, it, that doesn't surprise me at all. We tried anything we can try. It's just that the unit that I was in, you couldn't do that and continue to exist in the unit. They were, like I said, fishbow. Mm-hmm. They watched everything you did. Uh, if you had somebody you didn't like, all you had to do was walk up to the commanding officer and go, you know, you know, Joe Smith over there. I'm saw him dating one of the, one of the junior enlisted girls. I think he's sleeping with them. If they thought that he was being promiscuous, boom, he was out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, mean one of my best, strict. one of my best friends, a guy named, uh, named Jim, Jim was, um, was a intelligence analyst. One of the best that, ever worked with in my life. Um, when he left uh, Japan, he went to um, Hawaii. We have a site on, in Hawaii, but the, the dream assignment, right? So they're having a party on the beach one day, and this there's this young army guy way out in the water that is drowning. And uh, Jim is an athlete. He's saying, he swims out there, tugs the guy to the shore, you know, does the breathing and the chest compressions and saves his life and gets a medal for it. And then at the same event, somebody uh, was showing a picture of, of Jimmy sitting on the beach with a bong in his hand. Mm-hmm. So a week after he got the medal for saving the soldier's life, he got thrown out of the uh, Army Security Agency for smoking marijuana. <laughs> at the same freaking event, wow. you know, I'm going, Oh man, come on. You know? So yeah, they were, it was, it was a weird organization to be in. And, um, I don't know. It, it was, it was exciting though. I, I love my time in the military. I love being able to make, um, what I felt was a, a real contribution you know, I mean, any, you can carry a gun into battle, and I did two and a half years in Vietnam, so I kind of know what that feels like. But but things that change the world, you know, like the Afghani invasion or Masatung dying or KL007 getting blown out of the sky, those are 
events that remain in people's consciousness for long after the impact that they had. Yeah. They get to, getting to participate that that was pretty cool. Yeah, they shape history. They shape, and they yeah. shape the future. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I have another meeting coming up with my grandson. It's Veterans Day, and I've got mm-hmm. to make an appearance at his school. Uh, how much time do we have? Oh, we can. Uh, I mean, wh- whatever you're ready, you know. Well, can, do you mind if we call it a day? And let yeah. me say thank you so much for letting me do this, and and thank for you. anybody in your audience who listens. Thank you for listening to me ramble. This None of this was planned. It just came out the way it came out. So there are missing pieces. There there may be more important pieces, but this is this is what it is. It's part of my story. Awesome. And you're definitely welcome back anytime. I'd love to stay in touch with you. And I, and I completely forgot it was Veterans Day. So, yeah. you know, thank you for your service. Oh, you're most welcome. It was uh, some of the best years of my life. Proud to do it. Proud to serve. Awesome. What an appropriate day to be doing this. I, I think it worked out pretty well. I didn't think about it either when, when we worked out the timing. It just never popped into my head. Wow. So if it's okay with you, Gary, I will say goodbye from now, and maybe we'll do it again. We'll see. Sounds awesome. Thank you, and have a great day. You too. Thank you so Thanks. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.